Chapter Three of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Joan ran on, stumbling over rocks and brush, with the darkness before her eyes, the terror in her soul. She was out in the cedars when someone grasped her from behind. She felt the hands as the coils of a snake. Then she was ready to faint, but she must not faint. She struggled away, stood free. It was the man Bill who had caught her. He said something that was unintelligible. She reached for the snag of a dead cedar, and, leaning there, fought her weakness, that cold black horror which seemed a physical thing in her mind, her blood, her muscles. When she recovered enough for the thickness to leave her sight, she saw Kells coming, leading her horse and his own. At sight of him, a strange, swift heat shot through her. Then she was confounded with the thought of Roberts. R Roberts, she faltered. Kell gave her a piercing glance. Miss Randall, I had to take the fight out of your friend, he said. You, you, is he dead? I just crippled his gun arm. If I hadn't, he would have hurt somebody. He'll ride back to Hoadley and tell your folks about it, so they'll know you're safe. Safe, she whispered. That's what I said, Miss Randall. If you're going to ride out into the border, if it is possible to be safe out there, you'll be so with me. But I want to go home. Oh, please let me go. I couldn't think of it. Then what will you do with me? Again that gray glance pierced her. His eyes were clear, flawless, like crystal, without coldness, warmth, expression. I'll get a barrel of gold out of you. How? she asked wonderingly. I'll hold you for ransom. Sooner or later, those prospectors over there are going to strike gold. Strike it rich. I know that. I've got to make a living some way. Kells was tightening the cinch on her saddle while he spoke. His voice, his manner, the amiable smile on his intelligent face, they all appeared to come from sincerity. But for those strange eyes, Joan would have wholly believed him. As it was, a half-doubt troubled her. She remembered the character Roberts had given this man. Still, she was recovering her nerve. It had been the certainty of disaster to Roberts that had made her weaken. As he was only slightly wounded and free to ride home safely, she had not the horror of his death upon her. Indeed, she was now so immensely uplifted that she faced the situation unflinchingly. Bill, called Kells to the man standing there with a grin on his coarse red face, you go back and help Holloway pack. Then take my trail. Bill nodded and was walking away when Kells called after him. And say, Bill, don't say anything to Roberts. He's easily riled. Ah, <laughs> laughed Bill. His harsh laughter somehow rang jarringly in Joan's ears. But she was used to violent men who expressed mirth over mirthless jokes. Get up, Miss Randall, said Kells as he mounted. We've a long ride. You'll need all your strength. So I advise you to come quietly with me and not try to get away. It won't be any use trying. 
Joan climbed into her saddle and rode after him. Once she looked back in hope of seeing Roberts, of waving a hand to him. She saw his horse standing saddled, and she saw Bill struggling under a pack, but there was no sign of Roberts. Then more cedars intervened, and the campsite was lost to view. When she glanced ahead, her first thought was to take in the points of Kell's horse. She had been used to horses all her life. Kells rode a big, rangy bay, a horse that appeared to snort speed and endurance. Her pony could never run away from that big brute. Still Joan had the temper to make an attempt to escape, if a favorable way presented. The morning was rosy, clear, cool. There was a sweet, dry tang in the air. White-tailed deer bounded out of the open spaces, and the gray, domed, glistening mountains, with their bold, black-fringed slopes, overshadowed the close foothills. Joan was a victim to swift vagaries of thought and conflicting emotions. She was riding away with a freebooter, a road agent, to be held for ransom. The fact was scarcely credible. She could not shake the dread of nameless peril. She tried not to recall Robert's words, yet they haunted her. If she had not been so handsome, he had said, Joan knew she possessed good looks, but they had never caused her any particular concern. That Kells had let them influence him, as Robert had imagined, was more than absurd. Kells had scarcely looked at her. It was gold such men wanted. She wondered what her ransom would be, where her uncle would get it, and if there really was a likelihood of that rich strike. Then she remembered her mother, who had died when she was a little girl, and a strange, sweet sadness abided with her. It passed. She saw her uncle, that great, robust, hearty, splendid old man, with his laugh and his kindness and his love for her, and his everlasting, unquenchable belief that soon he would make a rich gold strike. What a roar and a stampede he would raise at her loss. The village camp might be divided on that score, she thought, because the few young women in that little settlement hated her, and the young men would have more peace without her. Suddenly her thought shifted to Jim Cleve, the cause of her present misfortune. She had forgotten Jim. In the interval somehow he had grown, sweet to remember, how he had fought for her and kept it a secret. After all, she had misjudged him. She had hated him because she liked him. Maybe she did more. That gave her a shock. She recalled his kisses and then flamed all over. If she did not hate him, she ought to. He had been so useless. He ran after her so. He was the laughing stock of the village. His actions made her other admirers and friends believe she cared for him was playing fast and loose with him. Still, there was a difference now. He had terribly transgressed. He had frightened her with threats of dire ruin to himself, and because of that she had trailed him, to fall herself upon a hazardous experience. Where was Jim Cleve now? Like a flash then occurred to her the singular possibility. Jim had ridden for the border with the avowed desperate 
intention of finding Kells and Golden and the bad men of that trackless region. He would do what he had sworn he would do. And here she was, the cause of it all, a captive of this notorious Kells. She was being led into that wild border country. Somewhere out there, Kells and Jim Cleve would meet. Jim would find her in Kells' hands. Then there would be hell, Joan thought. The possibility, the certainty, seemed to strike deep into her, reviving that dread and terror. Yet she thrilled again, a ripple that was not all cold coursed through her. Something had a birth in her then, and the part of it she understood was that she welcomed the adventure with a throbbing heart, yet looked with awe and shame and distrust at this new, strange side of her nature. And while her mind was thus thronged, the morning hours passed swiftly. The miles of foothills were climbed and descended. A green gap of canyon, wild and yellow-walled, yawned before her, opening into the mountain. Kells halted on the grassy bank of a shallow brook. Get down. We'll noon here and rest the horses, he said to Joan. I can't say that you're anything but game. We've done perhaps twenty-five miles this morning. The mouth of this canyon was a wild, green-flowered, beautiful place. There were willows and alders and aspens along the brook. The green bench was like a grassy meadow. Joan caught a glimpse of a brown object, a deer or bear, stealing away through the spruce trees on the slope. She dismounted, aware now that her legs ached and it was comfortable to stretch them. Looking backward across the valley towards the last foothill, she saw the other men, with horses and packs, coming. She had a habit of close observation, and she thought that either the men with the packs had now one more horse than she remembered, or else she had not seen the extra one. Her attention shifted then. She watched Kells unsaddle the horses. He was wiry, muscular, quick with his hands. The big, blue-cylindered gun swung in front of him. That gun had a queer kind of attraction for her. The curved black butt made her think of a sharp grip of hand upon it. Kells did not hobble the horses. He slapped his bay on the haunch and drove him down towards the brook. Joan's pony followed. They drank, cracked the stones, climbed the other bank, and began to roll in the grass. Then the other men with packs trotted up. Joan was glad. She had not thought of it before, but now she felt she would rather not be alone with Kells. She remarked then that there was no extra horse in the bunch. It seemed strange, her thinking that, and she imagined she was not clear-headed. "'Throw the packs, Bill,' said Kells. Another fire was kindled and preparations made toward a noonday meal. Bill and Halloway appeared loquacious and inclined to steal glances at Joan when Kells could not notice. Halloway whistled a Dixie tune. Then Bill took advantage of the absence of Kells, who went down to the brook, and he began to leer at Joan and make bold eyes at her. Joan appeared not to notice him, and thereafter averted her gaze. 
the men chuckled. She's a proud hussy, but she ain't fooling me. I've knowed a heap of women. Whereupon Halloway guffawed, and between them, in lower tones, they exchanged mysterious remarks. Kells returned with a bucket of water. What's got into you men? he queried. Both of them looked around, blusteringly innocent. Reckon it's the same that's ailing you, replied Bill. He showed that among wild, unhampered men, how little could inflame and change. Boss, it's the unaccustomed company, added Holloway, with a conciliatory smile. Bill sort of warms up. He just can't help it. And seeing what a thundering crab he always is, why, I'm glad and welcome. Kells vouchsafed no reply to this, and, turning away, continued his tasks. Joan had a close look at his eyes, and again she was startled. They were not like eyes, but just gray spaces, opaque openings, with nothing visible behind, yet with something terrible there. The preparations for the meal went on somewhat constrainedly, on the part of Bill and Halloway, and presently were ended. Then the men attended to it with appetites, born of the open and of action. Joan sat apart from them on the bank of the brook, and after she had appeased her own hunger, she rested, leaning back in the shade of an alder bush. A sailing shadow crossed near her, and looking up, she saw an eagle flying above the ramparts of the canyon. Then she had a drowsy spell, but she succumbed to it, only to the extent of closing her eyes. Time dragged on. She would rather have been in the saddle. These men were leisurely, and Kells was provokingly slow. They had nothing to do with time but waste it. She tried to combat the desire for hurry, for action. She could not gain anything by worry. Nevertheless, resignation would not come to her, and her hope began to flag. Something portended evil. Something hung in the balance. The snort and tramp of horses roused her, and upon sitting up, she saw the men about to pack and saddle again. Kells had spoken to her only twice so far that day. She was grateful for his silence, but could not understand it. He seemed to have a preoccupied air that somehow did not fit the amiableness of his face. He looked gentle, good-natured. He was soft-spoken. He gave an impression of kindness. But Joan began to realize that he was not what he seemed. He had something on his mind. It was not conscious, nor a burden. It might be a project, a plan, an absorbing scheme, a something that gained food with thought. Joan wondered doubtfully if it were the ransom of gold he expected to get. Presently, when all was about in readiness for a fresh start, she rose to her feet. Kells Bay was not tractable at the moment. Bill held out Joan's bridle to her, and their hands touched. The contact was an accident, but it resulted in Bill's grasping back at her hand. She jerked it away, scarcely comprehending. Then, all under the brown of his face, she saw creep a dark, ruddy tide. He reached for her then, put his hand on her breast. It was an instinctive animal action. He meant nothing. 
she divined that he could not help it. She had lived with rough men long enough to know he had no motive, no thought at all. But at the profanation of such a touch, she shrank back, uttering a cry. At her elbow, she heard a quick step and a sharp-drawn breath or hiss. Ah, Jack, cried Bill. Then Kells, in lithe and savage swiftness, came between them. He swung his gun, hitting Bill full in the face. The man fell, limp and heavy, and he lay there with a bloody gash across his brow. Kells stood over him a moment, slowly lowering the gun. Joan feared he meant to shoot. Oh, don't, don't, she cried. He, he didn't hurt me. Kells pushed her back. When he touched her, she seemed to feel the shock of an electric current. His face had not changed, but his eyes were terrible. On the background of gray were strange, leaping, red flecks. Take your horse, he ordered. No. Walk across the brook. There's a trail. Go up the canyon. I'll come presently. Don't run and don't hide. It'll be worse for you if you do. Hurry. Joan obeyed. She flashed past the open-jawed Halloway, and, running down to the brook, stepped across from stone to stone. She found the trail and hurriedly followed it. She did not look back. It never occurred to her to hide, to try to get away. She only obeyed, conscious of some force that dominated her. Once she heard loud voices, then the shrill neigh of a horse. The trail swung under the left wall of the canyon and ran along the noisy brook. She thought she heard shots and was startled, but she could not be sure. She stopped to listen. Only the babble of swift water and the sough of wind in the spruces greeted her ears. She went on, beginning to collect her thoughts, to conjecture on the significance of Kell's behavior. But had that been the spring of his motive? She doubted it. She doubted all about him, save the subtle essence of violence, of ruthless force and intensity, of terrible capacity which hung round him. A hello caused her to stop and turn. Two pack-horses were jogging up the trail. Kells was driving them and leading her pony. Nothing could be seen of the other men. Kells rapidly overhauled her. She had to get out of the trail to let the pack animals pass. He threw her bridle to her. Get up, he said. She complied, and then she bravely faced him. Where are the other men? We parted company, he replied curtly. Why, she persisted. Well, if you're anxious to know, it was because you were winning their regard too much to suit me. Winning their regard? Joan exclaimed blankly. Here, those gray, piercing eyes went through her, then swiftly shifted. She was quick to divine from that the inference in his words. He suspected her of flirting with those ruffians, perhaps to escape him through them. That had only been his suspicion, groundless, after his swift glance at her, perhaps unconsciousness of his meaning, a simulated innocence and ignorance might serve her with this strange man. She resolved to try it, to use all her women's intuition and wit and cunning. 
Here was an educated man who was a criminal, an outcast. Deep within him might be memories of a different life. They might be stirred. Joan decided in that swift instant that, if she could understand him, learn his real intentions toward her, she could cope with him. Bill and his pard were thinking too much of of the ransom I'm after, went on Kells with a short laugh. Come on now, ride close to me. Joan turned into the trail with his laugh ringing in her ears. Did she only imagine a mockery in it? Was there any reason to believe a word this man said? She appeared as helpless to see through him as she was in her predicament. They had entered a canyon such as was typical of that mountain range, and the winding trail which ran beneath the yellow walls, was one unused to travel. Joan could not make out any old tracks, except those of deer and cougar, the crashing of wild animals in the chaparral, and the scarcely frightened flight of rabbits and grouse attested to the wildness of the place. They passed an old tumble-down log cabin, once used, no doubt, by prospectors and hunters. Here the trail ended, Yet Kells kept on up the canyon, and for all Joan could tell, the walls grew only the higher and the timber the heavier and the space wilder. At a turn, when the second pack-horse, that appeared unused to his task, came fully into Joan's sight, she was struck with his resemblance to some horse with which she was familiar. It was scarcely an impression which she might have received from seeing Kell's horse, or Bill's, or anyone's a few times. Therefore she watched this animal, studying his gait and behavior. It did not take long for her to discover that he was not a pack-horse. He resented that burden. He did not know how to swing it. This made her deeply thoughtful, and she watched closer than ever. All at once there dawned on her the fact that the resemblance here was to Robert's horse. She caught her breath and felt again that cold gnawing of fear within her. Then she closed her eyes, the better to remember significant points about Robert's sorrel. A white left front foot, an old diamond brand, a ragged forelock, and an unusual marking, a light bar across his face. When Joan had recalled these, she felt so certain that she would find them on this pack-horse that she was afraid to open her eyes. She forced herself to look, and it seemed that in one glance she saw three of them. Still she clung to hope. Then the horse, picking his way, partially turning toward her, disclosed the bar across his face. Joan recognized it. Roberts was not on his way home. Kells had lied. Kells had killed him. How plain and fearful the proof. It verified Robert's gloomy prophecy. Joan suddenly grew sick and dizzy. She reeled in her saddle. It was only by dint of the last effort of strength and self-control that she kept her seat. She fought the horror as if it were a beast. Hanging over the pommel with shut eyes, letting her pony find the way, she sustained this shock of discovery and did not let it utterly overwhelm her. And as she conquered the sickening weakness, her mind quickened to the changed aspect 
of her situation. She understood Kells and the appalling nature of her peril. She did not know how she understood him now, but doubt had utterly fled. All was clear, real, grim, present. Like a child, she had been deceived for no reason she could see. That talk of ransom was false. Likewise, Kells' assertion that he had parted company with Holloway and Bill because he would not share the ransom, that too was false. The idea of ransom in this light was now ridiculous. From the first moment, Kells had wanted her, had tried to persuade Roberts to leave her, and failing, had killed him. He had rid himself of the other two men. And now, Joan knew, she had heard shots back there. Kells' intention loomed out of all his dark brooding, and it stood clear now to her, dastardly, worse than captivity, or torture, or death, the worst fate that could befall a woman. The reality of it now was so astounding. True, as true as those stories she had deemed impossible, because she and her people and friends had appeared secure in their mountain camp, and happy in their work, and trustful of good. They had scarcely credited the rumors of just such things as had happened to her. The stage held up by road agents, a lonely prospector murdered and robbed, fights in the saloons and on the trails, and useless pursuit of hard-riding men out there on the border, elusive as Arabs, swift as Apaches. These facts had been terrible enough without the dread of worse. The truth of her capture, the meaning of it, were raw, shocking spurs to Joan Randall's intelligence and courage. Since she still lived, which was strange indeed, in the illuminating light of her latter insight into Kells and his kind, she had to meet him with all that was cat-like and subtle and devilish at the command of a woman. She had to win him, foil him, kill him, or go to her death. She was no girl to be dragged into the mountain fastness by a desperado and made a plaything. Her horror and terror had worked its way deep into the depths of her, and uncovered powers never suspected, never before required in her scheme of life. She had no longer any fear. She matched herself against this man. She anticipated him and she felt like a woman who had lately been a thoughtless girl, who in turn had dreamed of vague old happenings of past before she was born, of impossible adventures in her own future. Hate and wrath and outraged womanhood were not wholly the secret of Joan Randall's flaming spirit. End of chapter 3